Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Nelson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Massioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. Well, welcome everybody who's joining in to the Sunday special edition of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. We do this show Tuesday, Thursday. 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time at Get Rev Radio, at Get Rev Radio, where you're listening. Please, uh, you know, follow us, follow all our speakers, and uh, please also share the link or the, the space if you like it. I'm Rob Nelson from Roundtable Media. Mark Lepresti is with me. Uh, Alex Mascioli is with me. And we're going to get wound up and started in a couple minutes. we got a lot to talk about today. We got a debt. We got debt negotiations. We're going to have the debt conversation. We're going to make ourselves have it. Mark Mark's a former lawyer, so we're going to talk about the Fourteenth Amendment, guys. It's going to be exciting. We're going to go legal. We're also going to talk about the end of the Bitcoin conference. I actually had an interview with RFK Jr., the only one at the Bitcoin uh, Miami twenty twenty three conference, all about the U.S. economy and the banking system. And we're going to talk about MetaMask, Alex. What's MetaMask doing? We're getting the tax thing going on, the 14th Amendment, the taxes, and of course, just a big week ahead. Hey, Mark, as we get started, as people are tuning in, why don't you uh, give just, you know, a, your version of a market wrap from the week behind and the week ahead. Give a quick take on the, this past week and, and the week ahead of us, because, you know, we're right in the middle. We're doing a Sunday show. You know, this is where investors are thinking, huh, this was the week before. This is the week ahead. The week ahead, Rob. So this is going to be an interesting week as we round out this current earnings season. Lots of very interesting companies reporting this week as we continue to monitor the condition of the U.S. economy, the impact of inflation on consumers. We're going to be looking, and of course, particularly uh, for uh, lows uh, in the wake of uh, Home Depot's terrible earnings last week against the contrasting backdrop, of course, of Walmart's uh, beating expectations. I believe it was on Thursday. We're also going to hear from Costco. Dollar Tree is going to be showing us whether or not the trade down trade is already starting to manifest. We're also on the, in the tech side. We're going to get earnings from NVIDIA, which folks are going to be watching very carefully, continuing to monitor the health of the chip sector. TD Bank will give us another view into how the U.S. banking system, the much maligned and crisis, no crisis on and off banking sector will, will be. Uh, we will get the minutes of the last FOMC meeting, I believe, on Wednesday. And, of course, everybody will be reading the tea leaves to see whether or not we can glean any more information from that last FOMC meeting that we had just two weeks and change ago. We'll have the Bureau of Economic Analysis is reaching and issuing the PCE numbers, uh, which, of course, as everybody knows, is the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation. And we'll get consumer sentiment 
at the University of Michigan, which I expect will be fairly negative. So that's what we've got in the week ahead, Rob. John Najarian, are you with us now? Yes, Rob, I am. Good to see you, but I can't see you, but I can hear you. Um, that's the Twitter spaces. When is Twitter spaces going to let us see each other? Maybe never, maybe soon. soon. What's your take on the very, very, very soon? What's mid summer, Rob? Mid summer. We're going to be prepared for it, by the way, B3 Nation. You're not just going to listen to the mellifluous sounds of our market master's incredible voices, but you're going to get to see what we look like. Wow. Big stuff. Yeah, you're going to get. You're going to get to see John Nigerian on a boat. Maybe with a shirt on, maybe not. You never know. Hey, we put out we put out a picture from the uh, swimming pool out here in Dorado a few minutes ago, Mark. Come on. And I'm sure you broke the internet. Um, Rob, can we ask John to do the week that was since I just did the week ahead? Yeah, absolutely, John. Please do the week that was. Mark did the week ahead. We're going backwards. We're doing the week ahead first. Let's do the week behind. All right. Week behind was really a... Uh, pretty substantial move out of the regional stocks, uh, regional banks, that is, sorry. Um, and that was because the Fed was pretty quiet about, uh, even though it's the office of the controller of the currency and the treasury that have the most to do about what happens. But nonetheless, um, we saw Comerica go from 31, that's CMA, from 31 to 40. Um, in three and a half days, that was a fantastic move. Um, but a lot of the regional banks had big jumps this week, and that was more or less forecast by the aggressive buying of calls over the prior week. Um, and now people are getting back on the well, maybe after Janet Yellen opened her trap about um, more bank mergers. Um, they got a little scared over the weekend, so we'll have to see whether or not they really stick with that and believe that we're going to see a, a, a little bit more volatility in the banking sector. Overall, I think uh, most of the banks have weathered this very well, but obviously some of these that have not recovered, Pack West being one of them, um, you know, it's been a, a minor recovery. It hasn't been a major rub. But uh, we did have earnings from Walmart um, that were good, earnings from Target that were so-so, um, and uh, we had a nice move out of Amazon again. So uh, select retailers did well, um, in particular trade down or places where people could shop and get deals did well, um, but not necessarily broad market retail uh, did not do quite as well. You know, you mentioned the banking sector, and uh, I want to take a minute and talk about the Bitcoin Miami 2023 conference. I also think Jordan Freed is with us. I'm going to bring Jordan, if you're there, I'm going to bring you up for a minute to join in. Um, I was obviously at the at the conference for Roundtable, and I was the only person who got to interview RFK Jr., who's running for president as a Democrat, um, and spoke in a keynote address at the Bitcoin conference about Bitcoin and John and Mark and Alex about and B3 Nation about the state of the US economy and in particular the banking sector. So let's let's get into that conversation and then we'll talk about the debt and the debt the debt dilemma in a minute. But it was very interesting talking to RFK Jr. because he is a he's he is a big Bitcoiner. He understands the premise of Bitcoin. He understands the sovereignty premise. He understands the utility as we move forward towards CBDCs and all of that. 
But, you know, a lot of people may or may not know that his uncle, Robert uh, JFK, um, JFK as president, took on the Federal Reserve a little bit. There's debate about how much he took on the Federal Reserve, but he clearly, you know, he clearly dealt, you know, with executive orders on silver certificates, worried about what's happening. He saw challenges with the central banks and saw challenges with the Federal Reserve and tried to check that challenge back. And RFK was the only Kennedy second generation that was old enough to, you know, certainly he was old enough when his father died. He was 17, 16 years old to perhaps have insight on it. And he's very clear that he believes JFK saw a threat in central banking, not that he wanted it to go away. And RFK's premise was Bitcoin doesn't replace fiat currency like maximalists think. It puts a check on fiat currencies. So I want us to have that conversation. And Jordan, are you live with us? Can we hear you? What's going on, everyone? Happy Sunday. Welcome, Jordan Freed. So the idea that Bitcoin becomes a check on fiat currencies, it doesn't necessarily replace it in a place like the U.S., at least not for a long time, but it checks it. Yeah. Happy Sunday, everyone. I'm sitting here uh, having a cigar, uh, you know, um, just enjoying the conversation. Uh, is it a check? Of course it's a check. It's shown the whole world uh, what the alternative is. Uh, imagine a form of money where there's some actual accountability. Uh, it's the only thing ever created that's got a, a scarce supply. Uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem, I think, is stronger than ever. And there's a lot of really interesting things happening in Bitcoin, more than even Bitcoin itself. I'm super interested. And Rob, I won't get into that just here, but I think everyone here ought to be looking into what's happening on top of bitcoin it's too big to ignore there's an explosion of tokenization and other really cool things issued on top of it and now it's not just rfk you've got two presidential candidates rfk i think it's also um uh, vivek uh i'm gonna butcher his last name yeah. ram ram uh ram swami that's also accepting bitcoin um as campaign donation so i love that bitcoin's i think bitcoin's going to be a big campaign uh topic as our cbdc is going into the 2024 election cycle and absolutely, it's a check. I think it's, you know, Americans are, uh, I think I shared on a previous space, my, my favorite website is still WTF happened in 1971. Americans today are waking up to the fact that our money is just not as good as it was decades ago. Um, there's, you know, uh, since the collapse or or since the departure from uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement, you know, dollars are not redeemable for any asset. Uh, and that's a that's a major concern for anyone holding a massive amount of dollars. So, um, yeah, uh, it, it is a check. It's a it's, it's a better alternative. Well, I also talked to Jack Mallers, who uh, you guys may know or not know, but B3 Nation, Jack Mallers founded Stripe. Um, and Jack is a very is young. He comes from a family of of financiers. But, you know, his, he is a great quote. Everyone on planet Earth should have access to money that can't be inflated by governments and a network that can't be, in, in, you know, influenced by intermediaries. And that is part of the premise. And so the question becomes, when we look at the fiat marketplace, how does it start accepting the fact that a new generation, even in developed countries like the U.S., the Western world, whatever, is going to start wanting to use things like Strike? Which, by the way, I bring up Strike, Jordan, because Strike is built on the Lightning Network on Bitcoin. Yeah, listen, uh, pe pe people are waking up to it. I mean, you've got competitive nations that are offering uh, digital residencies to people just as a matter of protecting your optionality to access markets and tools uh, like Strike. Uh, you've got the Estonian government, which offers an e-residency. 
which is super easy to uh, obtain, that allows literally anyone to open a bank account in Estonia, to uh, open a company in Estonia. The same is now true for for Palau, where you can get one of these IDs. Sorry, I've got an 18-month-old running around in the background. Uh, but uh, you've got Palau as well, which will allow you to clear KYC on a lot of different um, on a lot of different exchanges. And uh, Americans will do whatever it takes to, uh, especially those that are now in the know. And I think many more are now waking up to it to be able to access tools where they can have exactly as Jack said, a form of money that is uh, it's the opposite of of, of inflationary. Uh, it's it is a it's a, in my opinion it's a far better alternative. Uh, to uh, to many different forms of money out there today, including U.S. dollars. How does Mark, John, Alex, how does that, what what Jordan's saying, fit in? And by the way, I actually, it's just randomness. It's like that I'm, you know, Forrest Gump here. But I interviewed the president of Palau about that. And his whole premise is what Jordan is saying. He's like, we're going to make a place for, you know, we're going to make a safe haven for a digital identity. And we know it's good for our economy and it's going to be good for Western you know, Western, wealthy Western people are not wealthy, but I mean, people who can't, you know, if the U.S. clamps down on stuff, this digital identity will make a difference. Do the traditional fiat markets have to start embracing not just Bitcoin as an as an asset class, but some of this technology, some of this move, which, you know, again, may be different in different countries. It's it's a store of value in the U.S. It's a it's a means of a currency in El Salvador, you know, for the most part. I mean, it's more store of value here. You know, listen, I, th- I, I love how over the last couple of years, including El Salvador, we've been taking traction uh, on Bitcoin, you know, that making currency, uh, other people accepting digital identities and, and whatnot. The problem is, is that if you ask most people where those countries are, they can't point them out on a map. So although it's a great narrative in moving forward, we still need to have larger, more modernized countries, uh, more recognized countries be able to take the lead and take the jump to be able to do that in order to make it really become a powerful thought. Um, So until then, I think we're just still playing games. Uh, But to Jordan's point, I think Bitcoin has a great narrative uh, in the presidential election this year. Um, and it's especially important when consumer retail confidence in crypto is an all-time low. So that's my thoughts. Mark, John, what do you guys think? And by the way, one of the things RFK Jr. said was he really talked a lot about the, the current U.S. banking system. And John, you were talking about bank stocks and the regional banks and, and sort of this fear that even if the U.S. banking system is solid, the, the aggregation of smaller banks into big banks. And what are we going to have? J.P. Morgan of America, the bank? Like, you know, that that isn't a good thing. It may not be a good thing. Uh, most of us would say competition um, breeds better, uh, whether you're a football player or whether you're a bank. Um, the competition from folks that would uh, pay you interest on checking accounts, for instance, that never used to occur on any where near the scale that it does now. That would not have happened were it not for competition. So there are things that should be happening um, that I think will happen over time. But right now, I think the real challenge is, number one, Operation Chokehold, which, you know, it's it's gone way past being conspiracy theory, you know, because openly the government has tried to shut down as much 
digital asset uh, trading um, on rails, all the rest as they possibly could. So I'd be interested in Mark's and uh, Alex's take too, as well as Alex's take on the uh, the MetaMask issue. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, Mark RFK said the one of the first things he would do as president is replace Gary Gensler. Well, to John as well, because because hey, John, is Gary Gensler a poser? I I meant to ask you that question. The answer is still yes. The man is a poser, um, and now he's trying to be a criminal. He's trying to basically say the SEC should not have to answer um, Coinbase's to Coinbase's lawsuit. He wants the lawsuit thrown out. Um, I don't think it will be. I think he will uh, suffer the consequences of this desperate ploy to uh, somewhat remain relevant because he has refused staunchly to answer very legitimate questions by Brian Armstrong over at Coinbase. And, you know, when your regulator won't tell you things, that's a real problem. And obviously this is something that, you know, will tar Gary Gensler uh, and his legacy, if he has one, at the SEC forever. Well, I, I totally agree with, with that, of course, Doc. Uh, I'm a little bit more concerned, however, this weekend about the continued tarnishing of America's status on the world stage and about the threat to the American dollar as the reserve currency of the world and the currency through which international trade is conducted against the backdrop not only of this country and this administration's absurd position on crypto and Bitcoin, but how this factors into the debt ceiling conversation, right? And when you have it, I think I, I think uh, uh, one of our production team pinned a, a tweet about Biden's comments during the G7 that, you know, he somehow uh, looped in the fact that, you know, any debt ceiling deal cannot include the protection of crypto. And that's, you know, kind of like, well, well, I'm sorry, wait a minute. What what when did crypto come into this conversation? But here's the bottom line, Rob. If we default, which I don't think is going to happen. Wall Street doesn't think it's going to happen. And I think most people think, rightly so, that it won't happen. But listen, black swans do occur, and there's never been a more polarized and partisan backdrop for the potential for a, an agreement on the debt ceiling to not be reached. Insanity like Biden talking about the 14th Amendment, invoking the 14th Amendment, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But if we should default, and if we don't, but our shenanigans around the default and lack of agreement on the debt ceiling, take it right up to the brink. Or if they kick the can down the road with things like the, the 14th Amendment, it will impact how the rest of the world looks at our currency, at our economy, and how it looks at us as a debt counterparty. We owe trillions of dollars to other nations, many that don't like us very much. And most people think that it's Russia, excuse me, it's China. It's actually not. Our biggest lender is Japan, followed number two, of course, by China. But like any other lender-borrower situation that continues to monitor the creditworthiness under the terms of the debt arrangement with its borrowers, this is going to impact, and I think already has impacted, the world's view of the U.S. as a world power, well, as a reserve currency, and as a borrower, the trillions of dollars that we owe to other nations. Go ahead, Alan. Mark, let me ask you this: uh, you're you're a, you're a man of 
of stable foundation when it comes to uh, these type of things. Uh, with the optics that our country is putting out right now and has put out for the last X amount of years, you know, and, and judging by and going back to uh, history with uh, many uh, positions of being a default, what are your expectations percentage-wise that we actually default and make ourselves look like a bunch of buffoons or come up ahead of time and say, listen, we're not going to be the joke? Well, um, I tend to believe that the market, and we'll talk specifics in a minute, tends to get this right more often than it gets it wrong. And the current percentage odds um, out of 100%, of course, being a guarantee of default, zero being it's completely impossible, that's being signaled by the credit default swap market is around 3%, right? So very, very unlikely, and I have maintained and continue to maintain that I think it's very, very unlikely. But that doesn't mean, and this is part of the point I was trying to make before, Alex, and your question is a great one. That doesn't mean that the buffoonery along the way will not cause further damage to our status on the world stage. But particularly, and I, and I keep bringing this up because it's important, particularly as it relates to the terms that our lenders are willing to offer to us when we borrow money from other nations. And we are That's indebted to the tune of trillions to other companies, Japan number one, China number two. And China, hate to tell everybody, doesn't like us very much. Mark, that's a great, great point. By the way, everybody, you're listening to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain special Sunday edition on Twitter Spaces. We do this Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, every Tuesday and Thursday. This is our Sunday special. You're listening to it at Get Rev Radio on Twitter Spaces. Please uh, follow us, follow all the speakers, and share the space. It makes a difference to us. Um, and we have Thomas A. from the Sevens Report. Tom, I'm going to bring you up in a minute. Mark, I'm going I'm to agree with everything you said. And Alex, great question, with the caveat that I'm not a market expert, but I am a political expert. And I worked for Clinton, knew Clinton, you know, that's, you know, I, I have I've been inside the middle of this. The difference right now, and I agree, Mark, we're not going to default, but anybody, and the market may just be missing this, anybody who thinks that the hardcore con Republican faction that has enough votes to stop it from going through is going to cave is wrong. They won't let us fully default, but they are going to force Biden, who we know is not a strong leader, argue how much he's cog you know, cognitively in decline. They are not they are going to make Biden, they're going to make Biden, you know, play chicken first. And he won't play chicken to the very, very, very last second. They are going to force spending reductions he's not willing to make. So maybe we don't fully default, but Mark, the shenanigans you're talking about happen. We're this isn't resolved by June first. And so your fear of that, that alone causes catastrophic damage. So I, I agree. And, and what you're talking about is what people have just started referring to in the past few days as a hard versus a soft default, borrowing, of course, from the hard landing, soft landing in conjunction with the interest rate and inflation situation. But I, I would love, we have Thomas Say from the Severance Report up on stage, and I would love to get Tom's read, Tom, debt ceiling. Is the market, specifically the VIX and the CDS market, are we getting it right in terms of the odds of a default, or do you see it differently? Hey, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. Always a pleasure. 
Uh, no, I think I think the market is right, and I think you're right, Mark. I think that then at the end of the day, uh, our default, quote unquote, um, is extremely unlikely. Uh, if if for no other reason than it's in no one's best political interests to for that to actually occur. But I think this this idea of a hard versus a soft default is a really important nuance. And actually, this is the first time I've heard that that term, and I love it because I think it makes a lot of sense. I would make the case that if you look at the market reaction from 2011, there was a soft default because the market went down hard even after there was a deal. And that's something that, that the politicians don't, don't seem to, to understand. I mean, it's, it's such a, you know, a, a tired script for those of us that have been watching this for a long time. I mean, things were going, the negotiations were going so well. I actually said to somebody in my office, I was like, somebody's going to throw a bomb into this because they want the conflict. For whatever reason, politically, they want the conflict. And sure enough, you know, we have the drama now. Um, I think the market is right that there will not be a default. But at this point, the market is pricing in, you know, a lot of positives at, at 4,200 in the S&P. You know, the technicals look good. Uh, I worry that this, even if a deal gets done and there's not a hard default, this could potentially have a repeat of 11 where it, it, it just helps push stocks lower in the, in, the, in the coming months. And Tom, what happens? Let's go with the scenario. Again, I'll be the outlier here. I think we're going to come pretty close to one. I disagree with you that the, that the that nobody benefits politically. Republicans have made a calculation that given Biden's so underwater ratings, the more stuff that happens for the economy, the better it will be for a Republican candidate in 2024. Biden will get most of the blame for this. So I don't think they'll let it default. But let's say they let the whole mess get pretty far and the market's not quite right that they'll sort it out. We'll have a somewhere in between a hard and a soft default. What happens? I think we see a, a big uptick in volatility and it just makes the market more vulnerable, right? Because if all of a sudden, you know, so far year to date, things have kind of broken in the bull's favor, right? We, we haven't had a big economic slowdown that everybody's worrying about. Earnings are holding up better than people had feared. There have been no major geopolitical surprises. You know, what if all of a sudden we start to see things start to break the wrong way and, and, and this debt ceiling issue, it just raises the ante, right? Because it's, it's not clear we're not going to have a recession that hurts people. I mean, uh, the, the, the economy has been incredibly resilient, but it's not a done deal yet, right? It's not a done deal that earnings aren't going to, to begin to decline the back half of the year and maybe 240 for 2024 and the SP 500 is too optimistic. So to me, this just increases the risk level. It obviously will increase volatility. And look, if we get to June 1st, I mean, the market's going to go down hard on this. The question is, does it recover? And I think it does do some damage to, to the market psychologically. Hey, hey Rob, John, can I, can I just say, Tom, if, I, if I could just ask Thomas to, uh, again, explain to people, when you throw out 2011, um, the reason that 2011 is important, folks, is we had a downgrade of the U.S. debt. Yep. So if you could just touch on that, Thomas, that would be great, because I think Obviously, some people know very well exactly what happened then, but a lot of other people will be somewhat surprised to hear that, you know, we had our debt downgraded in 2011, and that was the catalyst for all of what you're talking about. You're absolutely right, John, and thank you for bringing that up. That was a dumb assumption on my part. So what ended up happening in 11 was they did get the debt ceiling deal done. There was no hard U.S. default. 
but U.S. debt was downgraded and notched by the major rating agencies. If you look at what happened to the S&P 500, from the day the debt ceiling deal was done and disaster was avoided, it dropped nearly 15% between that date, which was in very early August, and very early October. And it was really only bailed out by the fact that the Fed did Operation Twist, if you guys will remember that from years ago, which was essentially kind of like a, a, a form of another QE. Guess what isn't happening this time? Any sort of form of QE, right? Perhaps the Fed you know, goes on hold and maybe cuts the 25 basis points earlier or something like that, but we're not getting any sort of Operation Twist. So I think that that's a really important point to remember. Market history teaches us that just because a deal is done, it doesn't mean the risk to the market is over. In fact, the exact opposite in the past. And, and Rob, great, uh, great. Let me just tie that yeah, in go. so that our listeners, like, that's exactly what I was talking about when I was trying to, to put this for our listeners through the lens of borrower-lender relations, right? What does that mean when our debt gets downgraded, right? That means that our lenders, right, and again, I told you who they are, are less willing to lend on terms that are as favorable as they currently are, right? Which is bad for every single facet of the economy. It's it it really is. And I, and one thing I will say, I'll disagree with one thing that you said, Rob. McCarthy does not want to be the speaker at the helm when the U.S. defaults. Does not want to. There's just there's no way in hell that he, for his own personal political future, wants that to happen. So I I agree. With I, you. I think, and and by the way, a lot of a lot is being made of of forty five. Uh, you know, former President Trump's comments telling House Republicans to set. You know, it's good to send us in default. You know, let the default happen. I I think that's more political advice than it is financial advice. I think he knows how bad that would be for this country, and I think that was a messaging from him to tell the Republicans to you know to hold their ground. Yeah, and that's all I'm saying, Mark. And I know we're not a political show, but this is this is where politics hit, hits finance. There are a handful of Republicans who aren't going to back down, and McCarthy doesn't have the votes if they don't. So Biden needs to realize that. Now, here's an interesting question, Alex. This is a good thing for Bitcoin. I know you believe people should always be buying Bitcoin, and all you know, and you know, obviously, it's a long-term investment. But right now, it's probably no matter where Bitcoin is price-wise. The next few weeks is probably a good time to be buying Bitcoin, right? Because all of this is only going to push the price of Bitcoin up. I mean, listen, we're we're going into uncharted territories right now um, with the confluence of a lot of things that we haven't experienced with uh, Bitcoin being in the marketplace. So, uh, but to your point, yeah, I agree. I think that there's definitely an opportunity where we get that flight again and uh, it moves into Bitcoin. I'm a trader. Bitcoin is long hold, um, but I believe that it does, uh, you know, raise that that price. And I believe that we, too, you know, Tom was mentioning uh, volatility in the marketplace, you know, bring volatility back. I'm going to sleep here. I want to I want to make some alpha and I want Bitcoin to appreciate and keep going forward. Bring volatility back. Bring it back. John likes volatility. Well, hold on. Yeah, John H. Hat that said that's right. Volatility great again. That's right. It wasn't a MAGA hat. It was make volatility great again, but it was red and white. You should have seen all the people that were triggered by it, Rob. We know you love triggering people, Jar. 
It's a trigger. I don't want to be triggered, guys. I'm very woke. Hey, let's take a second since we have Tom Thomas A with us. Tom, give us the global macro week ahead. And then and after that, let's talk a little about the market week ahead. And then we'll get into some more crypto stuff with MetaMask and all. But but Tom, what's the what's the global macro week ahead? What are the big things we're looking at? This week, beyond the, the the debt stuff, the negotiations, the, but that that date's still a little off. I think my audio cut out for a second. Tom, are you still there? Uh, it looks like we may have lost Tom. All right. Well, Alex or Mark, then why don't you give us a little quick, quick, uh, you know, macro week ahead? Why, well, Mark? Get the trap. Well, no, but like, I think I think you know I I sort of did um, in in terms of. Uh, the week ahead earlier in the show, Rob, right? With with sort of rounding third base with earnings season, uh, with the PCE coming out, the consumer sentiment coming out. I really think, and this is part of why we call this the you know the debt ceiling special report, debt ceiling crisis special report. That there's nothing that will take center stage from a macro perspective that is bigger than the debt ceiling debate. Not even the feckless Fed. Well, they're 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 related, right? Uh, unfortunately or unfortunately, they are related. I I don't think you know the only thing coming out of the Fed this week is the minutes of the last meeting, and frankly speaking, it's rare that anything earth shattering comes out of those minutes because folks have sort of poured through the transcripts. Um, and I'm just just getting word right now: futures open down on concerns over the debt ceiling debate because um, look. We may, and and you may be more right that than I am, Rob. Although I don't, I don't believe that you are in terms of the risk of default. But if we start to see the market turning in sentiment, right through both the VIX and the credit default swap market and and the bond market, um, then you know maybe we need to reassess. And the other thing is that I wanted to just clarify. Um, I totally agree with with Tom, and he's really one of the best people in the business. That's why we have him on. But when he talks about how well and, and surprisingly well companies did so far during this earnings season, and I expect this week to continue sort of in the same vein, specifically that more will report uh, meeting or exceeding expectations, still remaining in sort of that 75% of companies reporting range that we've been trending since the beginning of earnings season. But the thing that I want our, our listeners to keep in mind is that these earnings in this particular earnings season are in the context of two very significant things at play. One is companies got wise when they saw the, the macroeconomic conditions, impact on the consumer of inflation, credit card debt mounting, consumer debt at an all-time high, credit card debt crossing a trillion-dollar mark, savings rates at a 40-year low, wage stagflation, unemployment going up is one of the things that Jay Powell was hoping for in terms of his fight to rein in inflation. They saw all of that understood that less dollars in the marketplace would start to impact earnings. And what did they do last quarter? They started giving, in my estimation, uniquely conservative guidance, which then led to uh, downward revisions to analyst expectations, right? So it's like, if I go to a cocktail party with a bunch of people that I know I don't like, but I'm being dragged there because my girlfriend is making me go, my expectation of whether or not I'm going to have a good time at that party is already pretty low. So when I come out of it and say, well, that didn't suck as bad as I thought it was, that doesn't mean it was good. 
And I think that's really what was going on during this earnings season. And, and Doc, do you agree with that? Or am I just being Debbie Downer on earnings? Oh, I think you're right. I mean, uh, you know, in many cases, they beat uh, the estimates pretty handily. But the uh, when you look at it versus year over year and so forth, in many cases, they were down 10 or 20 or 30% even from what they had earned a year ago. And that was almost across the board. There were exceptions, but that was a vast majority were beating those lowered expectations, as you said, Mark. But they were not the sort of earnings that you would say from the lower left to the upper right, they're just plotting a course that's higher, higher, higher. They weren't. They were down a stock that would earn 330, for instance, a year ago was earning 275, things like that. And hey, so you're going to recall. No, John, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I was going to ask you a question. Basically, you know, we talked to Alex about crypto, Bitcoin being th a good thing right now. You know, a lot of our listeners, again, we're not giving you financial investing advice, but just kind of your perspective. Is there an area like in the future, in, in the, in, you know, when you look at the option space or an industry space and then mark the same question to you after, where right now an investor could go, if we, if we tumble into this soft default, this is a sector that's probably going to be okay no matter what. I, I don't know. Is it energy, you know, or, or a certain or a certain space? Is it like, you know, your best bet right now is to stick to this and not to that? Well, um, I guess uh, uh, consumer, you know, uh, the things that consumers need every day would be, you know, the likelihood of uh, – General Mills or, you know, Cargill or the sort, those sorts of things, but they're not going to be adversely impacted the same way energy would, for instance, because if we had a soft default, um, companies would start looking around at, well, we better start hoarding cash. The same thing consumers have done lately about hoarding cash. So I think, Rob, that uh, it's, it's a tough setup and I don't like betting against, uh, it's not just a patriotic thing, but I just, the, the world only ends once. Uh, so uh, to bet on, and I know you're not saying bet on a basically end of the world scenario, but very short-term put buying is what we've seen, but the puts expire in the next week. So they're basically betting that into the default potential of June 1st, and I'm sure Yellen will come out and tell us, oh, you know, we found a way to scrape together a few more shekels, and we're, it's not June 1st, it's really June 17th. It's always something like that, Rob. Well, you, you look at maybe and June 15th, John, right, in terms of the, the next significant tax revenue date um, and, and some other ways that they're finding, you know, quarters and nickels and dimes in, in between the cushions. But... If we get here's where the real risk is, folks. Okay, if Biden, then I'm just going to do it, Ralph, because I'm just looking at the time. If Biden is serious, and it does seem to be that he's seriously exploring invoking the Fourteenth Amendment, and we wind up kicking the can down the road, and, and, and what that means, folks, is essentially this debt ceiling decision gets procrastinated, and, and if politicians are given a choice, they will kick a can down the road nine out of 10 times. I, I, that just is what it is. 
But if this 14th Amendment is invoked and we kick the can down the road on the debt ceiling and start to unconstitutionally and illegally pick and choose through the executive branch what gets paid and what doesn't, Treasury interest rates are going to go bananas and it's going to send the economy into a, a, a downward spiral. That's that is my biggest concern. And I'm, I'm curious again to you, John, because I know you follow this as closely as I do, whether you agree or disagree. Hey, oh, before you, John, before you, I do agree. Just before you answer, okay. I was going to say, everybody out there, the reason Mark's bringing up the 14th Amendment is the 14th Amendment, technically, like in the fourth clause, I went to law school too. I'm just not a lawyer. Um, allows, it says basically if the U.S. debt has been validly through congressional legislative authorization been validated, it's real, then the, the president has the power. The Constitution prohibits that from being invalidated. So Biden could exercise the 14th Amendment. It's never been tested and say, you can't. You can't default. Right now, we are going to extend the debt. Well, but Rob, the, the, the problem with that, okay, is that um, it, it applies not to a debt ceiling. Remember, and, and a lot of people get this wrong, right, as, right. as I've learned in, in cocktail party conversation this weekend. This isn't the budget debate. That, that's that's right. the next happy worship that we have to look forward to, okay? This is not about the budget. And the Fourteenth Amendment can can only be invoked and has been invoked in the context of prioritizing, you know, government spending in the context of 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 a budget uh, 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 deadlock and the inability to agree on a budget and for the government to spend pursuant to a, a fully passed budget. Not this is just raising the dollar amount. This isn't what we're spending it on. And so I think, and look, I'm no constitutional scholar, okay? When I was still practicing law, I was a securities lawyer. And that, that, that rarely does that involve the Constitution. But I did break down an A-plus in common law at New York Law School where I went, and I did know a little bit about constitutional law. This is not something that's permitted under the Constitution. It's in a, It would be an illegal act on the part of this executive branch. But the problem, Rob, is that by the time it was litigated, the damage would already been done. A hundred percent, Mark. That's what I was going to say. And that's why I said this has never been litigated. But if he uses it in this way, to your point, it will get litigated. The Supreme Court would have to make a decision. But the chaos will happen in the even if they move quickly, there'll be a couple weeks of chaos. Like even if the Supreme Court said we will deal with this with, you know, three justice panel and make a decision quick. You've got a week of chaos uh, at a minimum. So can we talk about MetaMask for now? Are, are we good to switch? Are you guys ready or do you need to get more out? No, I think it's a great time. Uh, Alex has been all over this, so I'd love to have them explain it to the audience. Yeah, Alex, so everybody, what's happening is MetaMask is getting a lot of, lot of you know, blow up on stuff because it, it, they, people were saying MetaMask is going to track, you know, is basically going to report your stuff to the IRS about your, uh, you know, confidential information. It's not necessarily confidential, but it's personal. So Alex, this is not as simple as it looks, right? MetaMask is actually just trying to comply with what they have to do legally. And I'd love to understand why that's the case as well. Yeah, let me let me just cut through this real quick because uh, my answer is going to be short and sweet and to the point. I know that Twitter's blown up a lot on it. Um, a lot of people went to TOS of uh, MetaMask getting started picking different things but here's how it stands uh no they're they're nobody's reporting anything 
Uh, and as a matter of fact, when it comes to taxes, which has been the big thing that uh, has been highlighted, taxes are MetaMask charging taxes on services that MetaMask or products that MetaMask provides that you buy with your MetaMask from MetaMask. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion in uh, in the way this was written, maybe, uh, or, or the way you answered. Um, but people thought the world was ending. No. So the new terms of service are, and this is explicit, the, if you are using MetaMask and you buy a service or product from MetaMask, MetaMask will and has the right to charge you tax, just like any other online or, you know, other vendor uh, that you purchase products from, uh, if that's the case. It has nothing to do with taxes on any products tracking your crypto, any, if you bought something with crypto somewhere else, it doesn't matter, they're not tracking it. It is only on them being able to withhold taxes but products services purchased from metamask that's it crypto twitter blew up on this um and, uh, uh the, the the conspiracy theories are not correct nick let's bring you into this too and again help people understand you know uh, clearly everybody's worried that, that this is the uh, this is proof this is less decentralization not more you know Walk people through it. Alex gave us the bottom line. This is not what's happening. This is a. This is not what everyone's saying. But once rumors get out there, people react to those rumors. Yeah. So, um, you know, Alex was one hundred percent right. Basically, all it says is that any products or services that you buy through MetaMask, you know, they'll obviously charge and you know put on their internal ledger, you know, the taxes in which the consumer should incur. And this is no different than going to the grocery store, or buying gasoline or whatever. So no big reason to worry there. Um, we did see a bit of a drop uh, in crypto price action uh, from Saturday into Sunday. I certainly think that could have something to do with it, but there was also another headline concurrent with the MetaMask news in relation to, I guess, Republicans seemingly putting quote unquote crypto friendly legalese into, you know, debt negotiation um, uh, bills or, you know, whatever the, the in upcoming solution is. Um, so apparently Biden is against those crypto friendly provisions and is taking a pretty hardline stance. Of course, this is just coming from crypto media so it could be a little bit blown out of proportion but you're hit with kind of on a sunday a aka a low liquidity day as alex typically will note um you know we have metamask news and then we have biden trying to step on crypto again so i think that is definitely related to the, the the lower price action today and then just you know for upcoming monday has not been very friendly to crypto traders so um considering we're seeing this price action are on a sunday and equities are opening down um definitely watch out hey was nick i don't know I, I i that was the end of my i'm sorry i, I don't know if i uh, closed that out correctly but yeah that was and, and just the back those up, two headlines may lead the into red candles 
Yeah, just to back up Nick's uh, uh, info here, um, huge low volume day, 1.1 trillion, down just a, a smidge. But overall crypto trading, we're 19 billion uh, for the day. And speaking of half of that is Ethereum, um, and only eight and a half of that is Bitcoin. To put it to you, uh, 13 billion of it was Tether. Um, so very low, low, low volume Sunday. But Rob and Nick, does any crypto trader really get that much fud out of Grandpa Biden's comments? Like throw, throwing crypto, little bus in the debt ceiling discussion. No, that's the but that's the retail traders, Mark. That and and the retail traders that want to uh, you know that want to take that to heart and start getting scared um and believe the fud that that's what you know will affect some of the price action so institutional traders are just battling that but no one on the institutional side is it is believing that it's not causing any alterations to their trading activity yeah you know and, and alex it's interesting i talked to michael saylor at bitcoin miami 2023 and he had a really interesting you know he's a bitcoin maximalist but he also you know they, you know, Microsystems just put 150 million more, you know, bought 150 million more Bitcoin. And his view really is it, it, the volatility, and we've talked about this, doesn't matter. The ups and downs don't matter. This is a powerful asset class that's not going away. And, you know, he, he like you, is very calm with the, like, the ups and the downs. The retail traders get, you know, flipped out by it. It, you know, it creates anxiety. But I guess maybe frame it for our audience in the sense that, like, because a lot of them out there, B3 Nation, you may be retail traders. You should actually operate the same way as a big institutional investor, right? Or, or let's let's take microsystems. Like, his, it doesn't matter if you're putting a thousand or ten thousand in, or if you're putting hundred fifty million, and it's the same logic, right? Well, I, I mean, it doesn't matter in the short term space, right? So, so Michael Saylor is proven to be a trader. Uh, as he should with his company's treasury. Um, you know, every all the maxis love to say, oh, gosh, he's holding forever is the greatest thing. But they've sold along the way, and they bought back it. Uh, when it comes to the everyday person, and it comes to Bitcoin uh, especially, uh, you know, you don't have to fight the trend. You know, just just TCA in and out and, and make it work for you in the long run. Shouldn't volumes be okay. a lot lower in general? I mean, Signet is gone. And the Send Network is gone. And I was listening to someone from BlackRock talk about, you know, their views on the crypto space. And what they're saying is institutions, are, like, it's very difficult for them to get in without, you know, a bank allowing, you know, immediate conversion. And is that weighing yes, volumes? Uh, by, by the way, folks, that's our friend Jay. Very special situation. Yeah. Jay, thanks for joining us on a Sunday, my friend. Sure thing. Jay, thanks tell for having who me. you are. Tell, tell B3 Nation who you are. Sure, happy to uh, happy to be on, guys. Thanks for for sharing your thoughts and ideas. It's very helpful, I'm sure, to everyone listening in the audience. I um, was a prop trader at Goldman, and then essentially moved into Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Um, was there for for a few years, and then you know did a couple entrepreneurial things and move on. Rob. Worked at a couple other funds. Um, I was an earlier investor in crypto, probably earlier than most people. <laughs> before people knew what crypto was um, in 2012, 13. Um, I know a lot of people here probably did, but I would say the majority of people had no idea what crypto was at that point. Um, and I've been a trader around it, but yeah, I, I stick to the data and I'm pretty straightforward about how I see things. 
Um, so if you disagree with some of my opinions, it is what it is. But Jay, you, you just put something out that, that, that our producer tweeted that seemed to give, at least from Goldman's perspective and maybe from your perspective as well, that we should not be so blasé about the possibility of a default. Can, can you just give us two minutes of your view on that with this debt ceiling nonsense? Yeah, sure. So I think Goldman was one of the only banks um, in April to be 80 to 90% confident that this debt ceiling would be resolved before the X date. Now, we don't necessarily know what the right X date is. Yellen has an agenda. She's saying it's June 1st. Until this week, you know, until on Friday, we saw $68 billion in the TGA, and there's a link on my profile. You can track it every day. We also had the, had an opinion that, you know, we'd probably have $20, $30 billion left by June 15th. You have more tax revenue coming in. You have $10 billion going into the military on that date, and you have you have uh, roughly $25 billion going to Social Security. Social Security gets $25 billion paid four times a month, and they would have barely have enough cash. Then they would get another uh, amount, you know, taxpayer, uh, you know, fund revenue in the middle of the month, and that would take them to July. Now it seems like their funds are running pretty thin, and Goldman thinks that next week, you know, you'll have about thirty billion left, and you'll be cutting it very, very close. And they've changed their probabilities to thirty percent probability that this will get resolved before the X date. Thirty percent, it'll be, you know, right on the date. Um, and then 40%, it doesn't get resolved. Now, it does, not getting resolved doesn't mean we're not paying interest on our debt. What it does mean is like 2011, and obviously Yellen doesn't want to go into priority of payments, but I think it's it's very realistic. You could have a scenario where the government stops payments to Social, Social Security, Medicare, entitlement spending, defense, the U.S. Postal Service, and government contractors, along with 3 million federal employees, and really hurts consumer confidence while doing that, like they did in 2011 for a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, the, because they're doing that, I think if they cut spending by about 25% of the total budget, they can keep paying interest on the $31.4 trillion of debt, and they can roll over bonds. They can continue to do that for, several, for, for quite a long time. Now, they can obviously get sued by federal employees, you know, saying that, you know, you guys are paying the debt and you're not paying us and it would be very bad for our reputation, et cetera. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be very confident like everyone is in the mainstream media that this is going to get resolved by June 1st. You know, you look at the letter that's on my profile that Bernie Sanders, you know, one extreme got 10 Congress congressmen to sign that says, Hey, we can use the 14th amendment. You can't use the 14th amendment. It would be just as bad because there would be a chance that all the debt issued after the 14th amendment loophole is used may not actually be legal. The invalid chamber of commerce actually put out a letter. And that's also on my profile. The chamber of commerce put out a letter that this would not be the way to resolve things. So, you know, then you have these Tea Party guys come in and they walk out of negotiations on Friday. Biden chooses to fly to fly to Asia in the middle of this negotiation. I mean, this is complete. This is very embarrassing. I so Jay, think that we yeah. tomorrow. Go ahead. We only got another two minutes. So, so is it is it is it down? Is it another downgrade? Which is something I'm really really worried about. Is another downgrade possible? Well, I spoke with someone at Fitch Ratings. I think Fitch is the only rating agency of the three that would have the balls to downgrade the U.S. credit rating, you know, 
right after the X date. I think that S&P was very embarrassed in 2011. You know, the, I think they were pseudo like made fun of and threatened by the government officials, um, you know, about, you know, why would municipal bonds, why would government agencies use these rating agencies if they're going to downgrade you? So it was a very difficult situation in 2011. I doubt the two big rating agencies would move right away. They might give the government a, a little bit of slack. But I do think that Fitch, you know, because they want to be independent, just like small banks, they want to have a different view. I think Fitch might might downgrade it, and it may not be as big of a deal as S&P or Moody's. Well, I appreciate that, Jay. Thanks for the insight. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain special Sunday edition of Twitter Spaces. We do this every Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time at Get Rev Radio. Please follow us. Share the space when you're in it if you like it. Follow all of our speakers. We're pretty much out of time, so I'm just going to take one minute, John. One quick minute. Give us give us something positive to look forward to next week. I uh, think we could get a little bit more insight. We have some earnings on the 23rd. Between our way, obviously, just days from now. I would love to, as far as optimism, I would love to see the middle-of-the-road consumer um, healthier than we've seen in the Target or Walmart earnings. Uh, but I, I'm doubtful that that will be the case, Rob. But those are the sort of things that if I was trying to find uh, a rainbow, that's what I would go for. I just don't think it's that. And, and Rob, uh, I mean, let me give my, yeah, Mark. my 30 seconds. So uh, yeah, something that I am looking at carefully and, and starting to set up in terms of in, in my own portfolio and the small portfolio that John and I managed together, just our money, by the way, not outside investors, uh, is this trade down trade, right? This is sort of like dollar store 2.0 trade that I was talking about back in February of this year. We are continuing to see trade downs in things like retail and things like uh, uh, entertainment, food and beverage, from fine dining to casual dining to quick serve to outright fast food. I think we're going to continue to see that. We're going to continue to see companies like Walmart, even the dollar stores do well. So we're going to be looking at what, which companies will make it to the trade down trade portfolio. But that's something that we are looking at very carefully in terms of the next opportunity to make money amidst the mess. All right. Well, awesome show you guys. Uh, thanks to our special guest joiners, Jordan free Jay. Thanks for, for your comments. Um, it's been a it's been a great show. Obviously, uh, uh, Mark Le and Thomas A from the Sevens Report, Alex, Mark, John. The insights are always great. The conversation is always great. We'll be back on Tuesday, five thirty p.m. Eastern time at Get Rev Radio, Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. And as Mark always likes to say, thank you to our B three Nation because you guys listening are what makes this show work. So everybody have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll see you in a couple days. Thanks. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>